During the last half century, generally speaking, theological polemics over the nature and future of Christ's kingdom and thus debate over the issue of the millennium, I think has unfortunately ignored and underestimated evangelical Bible-believing post-millennialism as an option. The cavalier manner in which many teachers and writers have dismissed post-millennialism has not often been a testimony to the high ideals of scholarship to which we are committed as evangelical brothers. I think, for example, of the repeated reproach based on newspaper exegesis that nobody can believe in post-millennialism after the experience of two world wars. The flagrant logical and theological fallacies inherent in that kind of deriding remark are far more embarrassing to us as scholars than any alleged naivete among post-millennial interpreters of prophecy. Shamefully, some have even suggested that post-millennialism is essentially the product of evolutionary naturalism and theological modernism, something which is an audacious notion when one thinks of such well-known post-millennialists as the Scottish theologians William Symington and David Brown or the old Princeton stalwarts Charles Hodge, A.A. A. Hodge, and B.B. Warfield. Worse, however, by not taking a serious look at Bible-believing post-millennialism, evangelicals have cut themselves off from an eschatological option which can incorporate the theological strengths of amillennialism and premillennialism while avoiding the common and eye-catching weakness about which these two schools of thought respectively accuse each other. As one surveys the literature, it becomes evident that adherents of amillennialism and premillennialism tend to gravitate towards certain typical or paradigmatic lines of argument against each other. One of the fundamental objections that amillennialists keep raising with premillennialism pertains to the timing of Christ's dominion, namely that premillennialism does not recognize the present character of the established kingdom of the Messiah. On the other hand, one of the recurring complaints made by premillennialists against amillennialism is that it spiritualizes the golden age passages of scripture with their promises pertaining to the literal, external, or earthly character of Christ's kingdom. On both of these scores, actually, I think amillennialist and premillennialist overgeneralize and thus are not entirely fair with each other. For instance, premillennialist George Eldon Ladd certainly does teach that there's both a present and a future aspect to the kingdom of God. Amillennialist William Cox claims that his hermeneutical guideline is not that of spiritualizing, but, quote, literal where possible, often associated with the premillennial approach. Nevertheless, I think there is a noteworthy and valid underlying concern which leads to the expression of these respective criticisms between amillennialists and premillennialists. And I love all of them as my brothers. But I want to suggest to you this afternoon as a postmillennialist, an evangelical postmillennialist, that um, in that school of thought you can find a healthy affirmation of the presently established kingdom of Christ without eschewing the earthly or external consequences of the present spiritual reign of the Savior. This makes it worthy of reconsideration by evangelicals who are seeking to do justice to the full range of biblical teaching regarding the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And uh, it seems to me that we need to do that rather than to pay attention to simply refuting one another. But if we want to step back and look for a model that takes in the full range of the teaching, not just what's convenient for polemics, 
postmillennialism might be worthy of your consideration. Bible-believing postmillennialism has always been able to incorporate the strengths found in the other two positions, whether it be the establishment of the kingdom at the first advent, all millennialists insist on that, or the kingdom's visible earthly successes, premillennialists insist on that, and postmillennialism can do that without compromising the fact that this is produced not by holy war, not by compulsion, not by politics, but rather through the regenerating and sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit which attends the preaching of the gospel. There's enough misunderstanding of evangelical Bible-believing post-millennialism abroad today, I feel, that it would be worthwhile to make note of the kind of constitutive doctrinal convictions which have been set forth by its representatives. And I'm going to give you ten very quickly before I go on to argue my point this afternoon. One, evangelical post-millennialists champion the inspiration, infallibility, and sole doctrinal authority of the Bible, as is obvious simply by the mention of the names of A.A. A. Hodge and B.B. Warfield. Two, evangelical postmillennialists believe that fallen man is totally unable to do any saving good, cannot atone for his sins, and can become a member of the kingdom of God only through the redemptive work of the Savior and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Such convictions are notoriously those of Reformed theologians like Charles Hodge and B.B. Warfield. Two, no, three, learn to count. Evangelical postmillennialists teach the glorious personal return of Jesus Christ at the end of history to judge the world. Charles Hodge wrote, quote, there is to be a second personal visible and glorious advent of the Son of God. The events which according to the common doctrine of the church are to attend the second coming of Christ are first, the general resurrection of the dead, second, the final judgment, third, the end of the world, and fourth, the consummation of the kingdom of Christ. Four, evangelical postmillennialists insist that at his first advent, Jesus, the Son of God, came as the messianic or mediatorial king and established his saving kingdom among men on earth. Citing Philippians 2, Acts 2, Ephesians 1, and Hebrews 1, and a host of other biblical texts, William Symington wrote these words in his study, Messiah the Prince, or the Mediatorial Dominion of Jesus Christ. Quote, Christ's appointment to the kingly office was still farther intimated by his actual investiture with regal power at and after his resurrection. This might be called the inauguration solemnity of the mediatorial king. Christ's appointment gives him a rightful claim to the implicit and conscientious obedience of every moral creature. This appointment affords ample security for the overthrow of all Christ's enemies and the ultimate establishment of his kingdom in the world. The perspective that Christ established his kingdom at his first advent, thus beginning the realization of Old Testament eschatology, is a commonplace among postmillennial writers, thus making the claim of some amillennialists that they alone have a realized eschatology of the kingdom rather strange and spurious, if you know the literature. David Brown could hardly be clearer, and I quote him, Christ's proper kingdom is already in being commencing formally on his ascension to the right hand of God and continuing unchanged both in character and form till the final judgment, end of quote. So I, I purposely quote 19th century postmillennialists to make the point that this is not some kind of strange recent rescuing device of postmillennialists against the polemics of their all-millennial brothers. 
5. <clears throat> Evangelical postmillennialists are painfully aware that those who belong to Christ, those who are in the church, are appointed to suffering in this world and will inevitably undergo persecution and affliction in following their Savior and King. Listen again to Symington in his treatise, Messiah the Prince. The members of the church have many enemies. The devil, the world, and the flesh are in league against them. They wrestle not only against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickednesses in high places. They are required to assume the character, equipments, and attitudes of soldiers. Satan, the chief and leader of these enemies, exasperated at his overthrow, makes a desperate effort to regain his lost dominion over them. And although he cannot succeed, he does much to annoy such as have been rescued from his grasp." End of quote. Or listen to Charles Hodge commenting in 2 Corinthians 4 that Paul there compares himself to a combatant, first hardly pressed, then hemmed in, then pursued, then actually cast down. This was not an occasional experience, but his life was like that of Christ, an uninterrupted succession of indignities and suffering. We constantly illustrate in our person the sufferings of Christ. We are treated as he was treated, neglected, defamed, despised, maltreated, end of quote. I bring this out because evangelical postmillennialists have often been dealt with as though they didn't believe that the Christian life is one of suffering. Unfortunately, that um, is not true, and often you have straw man tactics, as I see recently in a book published by my friends at Westminster Seminary on theonomy, trying to make it out that those who believe in a, a glorious advance for the uh, Great Commission are going to do this, you know, it's like on a skate, I guess, without any kind of opposition or hurt or trouble whatsoever. And uh, we may be wrong about our beliefs, but that's not one of our beliefs. Six, evangelical postmillennialists believe that the gospel is to be preached to all nations by the church prior to the second advent of Christ, eventually bringing worldwide conversion and that this is the church's calling from God. Charles Hodge taught, quote, the first great event which is to precede the second coming of Christ is the universal proclamation of the gospel. The conversion of the Gentile world is the work assigned the church under the present dispensation. B.B. Warfield argued that, quote, precisely what the risen Lord, who has been made head over all things for his church, is doing through these years that stretch between his first and second comings, is conquering the world to himself, and the world is to be nothing less than a converted world. All conflict, then, will be over. The conquest of the world will be complete before Jesus returns to earth." End quote. Number seven, evangelical postmillennialism maintains that the victorious advance of Christ's kingdom in the world will take place in terms of the present peaceful and spiritual power of the gospel, rather than through a radically different principle of operation namely Christ's physical presence on earth using violence to subdue opposition. A. A. Hodge put it this way, The scriptures, both of the Old and New Testament, clearly reveal that the gospel is to exercise an influence over all branches of the human family, immeasurably more extensive and more thoroughly transforming than any it has ever realized in time past. This end is to be gradually attained through the spiritual presence of Christ in the ordinary dispensation of providence and ministrations of the church. Or if I might quote Charles Hodge, he insisted, quote, there is no intimation in the New Testament that the work of converting the world is to be affected by any other means than those now in use, 
It is to dishonor the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to suppose that they are inadequate to the accomplishment of this work. End of quote. Number eight, evangelical postmillennialism believes that with the power of the Holy Spirit working through the church's preaching of the gospel, in gradual stages of growth, the preponderance of men and nations will submit to Christ at some time in the future. B.B. Warfield drew this generalization. Quote, the nature of the whole dispensation in which we are living and which stretches from the first to the second advent is a period of advancing conquest on the part of Christ. The prophecy of Romans 11 promises the universal Christianization of the world. And then elsewhere he wrote in the uh, plan of salvation. The same insistence upon the supernaturalistic and evangelical principles that salvation is from God and from God alone and that God saves the soul by dealing directly with it in his grace. In other words, the sovereignty of God lays the sole foundation for a living assurance of the salvation of the world. If you wish, as you lift your eyes to the far horizon of the future, to see looming on the edge of time the glory of a saved world, you can find warrant for so great a vision only in the high principles that it is God and God alone who saves men, that all their salvation is from him, and that in his own good time and way he will bring the world in its entirety to the feet of him, whom he has not hesitated to present to our adoring love, not merely as savior of our souls, but as the savior of the world. The redemption of the world is similarly a process. It has stages. It too advances only gradually to completion. We can no more object the incompleteness of the salvation of the world today to the completeness of the salvation of the world than we can object the incompleteness of our personal salvation today, the remainders of sin in us, the weakness and death of our bodies, to the completeness of personal salvation. Everything in its own order. First the seed, then the blade, then the full corn in the ear. Number nine, evangelical postmillennialists do not hold that each and every individual on earth will someday be saved, but that at some future time the vast majority will. In Christ's wheat field, there will always be some tares until the final harvest in judgment. Charles Hodge taught that, quote, it is not to be inferred from this that either all the heathen or all the Jews are to become true Christians. In many cases, the conversion may be merely nominal there will probably enough remain untouched in heart to be the germ of that persecuting power which shall bring about those days of tribulation which the Bible seems to teach are to immediately precede the coming of the Lord. End of quote. And then ten, finally, evangelical postmillennialism teaches that there will be a final apostasy or falling away just prior to the return of Christ and judgment on the world. Interpreting Revelation 20, A.A. A. Hodge wrote, and I quote, Christ has in reserve for his church a period of universal expansion and of preeminent spiritual prosperity when the spirit and character of the noble army of martyrs shall be reproduced again in the great body of God's people in an unprecedented triumph of their cause and in the overthrow of that of their enemies, receive judgment over their foes and reign in the earth. While the party of Satan, the rest of the dead, shall not flourish again until the thousand years be ended, when it shall prevail again for a little season. Charles Hodge held that, and I quote, the great truth set forth in the Bible prophecies is that there was future in the time not only of Daniel but of the apostles, a great apostasy in the church, and this apostasy would be anti-Christian or anti-Christ, ally itself with the world and become a great persecuting power which will be overtaken with a final destruction when the Lord comes. And I'm sorry to have to be talking so quickly, but you see all of that is background to what I want to tell you today. 
And as you come in here, I'm afraid that many of you will, with goodwill, nevertheless, come in with many misconceptions of what the old Princeton school taught about these things, or Scottish theology, or present-day post-millennialists. These ten things should be borne in mind. Uh, one of the last old Princeton professors and one of the first at Westminster Theological Seminary, Oswald T. Alice, put the matter in these words. He said, my own studies in this and related fields have convinced me that the most serious error in much of the current prophetic teaching of today is the claim that the future of Christendom is to be read not in terms of revival and victory, but of growing impotence and apostasy, and that the only hope of the world is that the Lord will, by his visible coming and reign, complete the task which he has so plainly entrusted to the church. This claim is rendered formidable and persuasive by the all too obvious fact of the past failures and present feebleness of the church. But it is pessimistic and defeatist. I hold it to be unscriptural. The language of the Great Commission is world embracing and it has back of it the authority and power of one who has said, all power is given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. If you were to put it in a nutshell, uh, you may not agree with this. I, my guess is most of you don't, but I'm glad you're here to, to think about this. If you were to put it in a nutshell, you could say that we who are post-millennialists um, believe um, in an evangelical, Bible-based optimism about the church's successful completion of the Great Commission prior to Christ's second coming. We are, in a sense, believers that the Great Commission will be fulfilled before Christ returns or if you would like it more analytically precise, I'll now give you the thesis which I think you should work to refute or maybe to believe as you study the scriptures. I would argue that the spiritual redemptive reign of Christ is a present reality which will in the power of the Holy Spirit draw growing recognition and submission through the preaching and nurturing mission of the church, eventually bring widespread conversion of the nations and progressively produce outward sanctified consequences in the earthly affairs of men. Now then, what do I want to argue this afternoon? First of all, I would argue that many of the Golden Age passages of Scripture must be interpreted in an inter-advental way. All three of the millennial positions that we're familiar with recognize the consummation order wherein perfect righteousness dwells. All three will look at some portions of Scripture and refer them to that consummated time. Yet not all, not all of the Golden Age prophecies can apply to the consummation. Many may, but not all of them can. When one thinks of a passage like Psalm 2 or Psalm 72, we notice that it's talking about a time when oppression still occurs in the earth when there are enemies of the king still present, or as Psalm 72 specifically says, this will take place until the moon shines no more. It's talking about a time prior to the end of all things. In Isaiah 2, the nations are learning to turn from their warlike ways. In Isaiah 65, death still occurs. In Psalm 72, excuse me, 22, verse 27, all ends of the earth shall turn to Jehovah, shall be converted. What we have here then is a picture of a world where conversions are taking place, oppression is taking place, the nations are learning to turn away from war, enemies of the king are present and people still die. 
Moreover, there are numerous images in the Bible that indicate that growth is taking place in terms of the kingdom, in which case this is not the consummation form of Christ's kingdom. In Isaiah 9, verse 7, we read of the increase of the government and peace of the Messiah, which shall never end. In Daniel 2, we read of a stone that uh, is cut without hands, the kingdom of God that grows to fill the earth. In Isaiah 54, the prophet speaks, speaks of lengthening the tent lines, enlarging the tent <clears throat> so that your seed may possess the nations. <clears throat> Pardon me. In Ezekiel 47, <clears throat> we read of an ever-deepening stream that flows out from the temple of God. Or Christ in his New Testament kingdom parables of the mustard seed and the leaven speaks of the kingdom growing large and permeating all of life or of the world. And so consequently, with indications like these in the scripture, we cannot say that all of the Golden Age prophecies will pertain to the final perfect righteousness of the consummated order. The Bible teaches us that Christ is presently extending his dominion and will achieve the subduing of his enemies prior to return. That the kingdom is already established, we see, for instance, in Matthew 12, where Jesus declares, that his exorcisms prove that the kingdom of God has come upon them. Or in Matthew 28, after his resurrection, Christ declaring that he possesses all exousia, authority, power in heaven and on earth. And what does he now expect to take place? Psalm 2.8 says that he need only ask, and Jehovah will give him the uttermost parts of the earth for his inheritance. In Hebrews 10.13, we read he is now expecting his enemies to be made the footstool of his feet. As Psalm 72 said, his enemies will lick the dust. Psalm 72 says he will gain dominion to the end of the earth. And as Paul puts it in Romans 11, this will include the fullness of the Gentiles and all Israel. So the day is anticipated, according to Isaiah 11, that the earth will be full of the knowledge of Jehovah as the waters cover the sea. Now, when will Christ accomplish this, as B.B. Warfield argued, I think, persuasively, and I know a little bit about logic, in uh, his, uh, the prophecies of St. Paul. In 1 Corinthians 15, if you follow the order of Paul's presentation, you must recognize that the last enemy, death, is defeated at the general resurrection. Obviously, when dead bodies rise, death has been defeated. And Paul tells us that that will take place at his coming, and that will be the end. Now, if the last enemy will be defeated at his coming, as Warfield argues, then all of his other enemies are penultimate. They are not enemies to be taken care of after the resurrection, but prior to the resurrection. And at the resurrection, he delivers his consummated kingdom to the Father. And thus, post-millennialists have argued that Christ is presently reigning, Christ is presently extending his dominion, he is subduing his enemies, and the last enemy that he will subdue will be death when he returns. And so many of the Golden Age passages must be inter-advental. That's my first thesis. But now let me make a qualification about the visible success of the kingdom that I not be misunderstood. According to the Bible, the scope of the present messianic kingdom is the entire world inclusive of the doers of iniquity. In Matthew 13, verses 38 and 41, Jesus makes that plain. Even those who are unbelievers are under the dominion of the Messiah. But now how can that be the case? How can unbelievers who reject the Savior and live wickedly on the earth nevertheless be under the dominion of the Messiah? 
the perplexity of that question can be relieved by remembering a couple of relevant points. First, there is a difference between an objective state of affairs and the subjective recognition of it. There's a difference between having tuberculosis and recognizing that you have tuberculosis. There's also a difference between reigning by right, what we call de jure in political philosophy, and reigning in actual practice, de facto. It's evident at any time in a nation that undergoes revolution against constituted authority. Accordingly, the Bible would teach us that unbelievers often resist subjectively acknowledging the reign of Jesus Christ over them, but that nevertheless, objectively, and by right, that rule belongs to him, having been appointed to him by the Father and testified to by his resurrection and ascension. Furthermore, and this is crucial, like the gospel that is a savor unto both life and death, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, the reign of the Messiah presently breaks the power of sin and rebellion in two different ways. The kingdom is successful, or the kingdom expresses itself. It breaks the power of sin in two ways. One, in redemptive blessing. This is what we usually speak of, and I have any number of texts to cite there. But the other is in judgmental curse. Jesus reigns in judgmental curse today as well, something that is experienced uh, in the present life. You read that in Mark 9.1. You think of the fall of Jerusalem, uh, Christ uh, trampling out the grapes of wrath in history. And that judgmental curse will be experienced later in its full fury, according to the Bible. So that unbelievers who repudiate the Messiah's dominion are nevertheless under his reign in the form of wrath and curse. And so I want to make that very clear. When I speak of the visible success of the kingdom, I don't wish to exclude the fact that the kingdom also comes to expression in Christ's historical judgments against rebels, and of course consummated at the final judgment. But now finally, after all that qualification, what is the visible blessed success of the kingdom between the advents? What should we be looking for based on biblical teaching? What should we expect what should we work to achieve as followers of the Messiah? And I'll make three quick points and then let you ask me questions. One, the success of Christ's kingdom between the advents will be as all-encompassing in scope as sin and its effects. Once again, the success will be as all-encompassing in scope as sin and its effects. In 1 Timothy 4.8, Paul tells us godliness is profitable for all things having promise for the life that now is, as well as that which is to come. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. Notice how broad that is. God's will and God's will to be done on earth categorically. That's what we pray for, the kingdom coming in that way. The Great Commission calls for us to teach the nations to observe all things that Christ has commanded. Notice how extensive the moral expectation is everything that comes under the moral teaching of Jesus is to be taught to the nations. If we look at the models of the kingdom which we find in the Bible, I think we see that the kingdom applies to every aspect of life. One model will be Old Testament Israel. There we see the kingdom anticipated. In Matthew 21, Jesus says, the kingdom is taken from you. Obviously, in some sense, there was a kingdom in Israel. In Romans 4, and Ephesians 6, Paul interestingly transmutes the language of the Old Testament about the land into language about the world and about the earth. 
indicating, I believe, that Paul saw the Old Testament as a microcosm of what God intended for his kingdom on the entire earth. Indeed, Moses in Deuteronomy 4 said that Israel was a model to the nations round about. And in Isaiah 2, we read of the nations flowing into Zion to learn God's law and then to go out and obey it. So just note how extensive were the provisions of the royal law as it was seen in Old Testament Israel. If Israel is a model of the kingdom in some sense, then how broad is the kingdom? Well, think about the laws of Moses and everything that they touched. Secondly, the Bible gives us as a model of the kingdom the new heavens and the new earth. As Jesus says in Matthew 7, that the day is coming when people will enter into the kingdom, obviously in its consummated form. And in that kingdom, all workers of iniquity will be excluded. Revelation 21 reinforces that. Second Peter 3 tells us of a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. So whether you look backward to the model of Old Testament Israel or forward to the new heavens and new earth, how broad is the kingdom? Obviously it touches everything that has come under sin. In 1 John 3, 8, we're told that to this specific end, the Son of God was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. In Matthew 12, 29, Jesus tells us that it is currently his work to despoil the house of the strong man, the house of Satan. And he assures his church in Matthew 16, 18, that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Please notice there, it's not the church in the defensive position that is holding out. It's the gates of hell that will not prevail as the church does as the Savior tells it and moves out into the world. All of Christ's enemies are being subdued. 1 Corinthians 15, Hebrews 10. And so real quickly, what's the point here? If all of his enemies, of all the works of Satan, if all of life is to be touched by the kingdom, then what visible expectation do we have? Isaac Watts put it well in his hymn, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So the kingdom breaks the power of sin wherever there is defection from the will of God. And now I have two points of application. Secondly, of the three I'm making, the first point of application, fundamentally then, the success will be seen in mankind returning to faith. This is the first major problem mankind has, turning against God and his word. And so the first thing we look for as post-millennialists is a widespread turning in faith to God. Psalm 22 speaks of worldwide conversion. Isaiah 11, of the knowledge of the Lord flooding the earth. Matthew 28, the nations being baptized under the work of the Great Commission. In Psalm 72, of the righteous flourishing. And in Romans 11, of the fullness of the Gentiles and all Israel being brought to faith. And so we look for the visible numerical increase of believers and concomitant with that, the blessed purification and expanse of the church. Malachi 1.11, from the rising of the sun to the going down thereof, there will be a holy offering, a pure offering given to him. So what do we look for in terms of this worldwide advance of the kingdom first? Numerical increase in believers and the strengthening of the church. And then my third point, or second application. Consequently, the success will be seen in the moral improvement and consecration of all areas of earthly life and conduct. We should expect to see as a consequence of mankind returning to faith, as a consequence of the work of the church in preaching the gospel under the power of the Spirit, charity toward the poor, Psalm 72, Isaiah 61, the relief of oppression, justice in our laws and justice in our courts, Isaiah 9, 
We should see the expansion of lifespan, according to Isaiah 65, the turning away of the nations from warfare, Isaiah 2. Or if you want it put very nicely, one of the most beautiful images in the Bible, Zechariah 14, 20 speaks of the total consecration of life. Zechariah says, in that day, in the day of Messiah's kingdom, even the bells of the horses will have inscribed on them holiness to the Lord. Even the most trivial detail of life, the parade decorations of the horses, will be consecrated to God. That's what we're looking for. Very simply put, evangelical post-millennialism within the framework that I presented to you, spitting this out so quickly, believes that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And we see that coming to expression and should anticipate it coming to greater and greater expression in all areas of life. And now, what would you like to ask about this? We will start here and try to work back. Right. For those of you who didn't hear, the question is, how much does this version of postmillennialism uh, differ from, say, that of uh, John Jefferson Davis, where he downplays or repudiates theonomic type of applications? I, I hope you noticed in this, those of you who are up on the literature here, I didn't mention anything about theonomy in this lecture. I did talk about the fact that justice should be in our laws, and you see, that is, of course, a subordinate point. The most important thing is that Christ is the Redeemer. He blesses his church. The Great Commission gets done. Widespread, you know, conversion. People are nurtured in the faith. They try to um, obey God in all areas of life. And then the question comes up, well, what would you do in the political order? What kind of laws would be just laws? Then theonomy would come in. And I would argue, well, I think from cover to cover you find the justice of God. And you know, I won't get into theonomy right now. Um, I believe that what I gave you today is classical post-millennialism. I learned this from the Scottish theologians and from the Princeton greats, and they can be wrong, but um, I, I didn't learn this from Gary North or R.J. Rushdie and so forth, which is just one contemporary application of some of these things, which I think overlooks the context in which I presented it. Um, in all honesty, if there is a difference, I would say in the Scottish theologians, you do see a strong emphasis upon the laws of Jesus being enacted among the nations for reasons in Scottish theology that I think, I mean Scottish history that are noteworthy. Uh, you don't see as much of that, there's some, but you don't see as much of that in Warfield and the Hodges. Okay, uh, well actually this side, then we'll go back. Yeah, let me answer as a post-millennialist and then as a preterist. Uh, because those were separate issues, too. People should realize, you know, logically, you don't have to be a preterist to be a post-millennialist, and many weren't. Um, I made the point in summarizing post-millennialism that post classical post-millennialism believes in a falling away at the very end. You know, and then we kind of, we rib our evangelical brothers. We say, you guys don't have anything to fall away from. At least, you know, we have this glorious manifestation. Then there's an apostasy at the end, okay? I say that in goodwill towards you. That's something we have to talk about. Okay, so in terms of a conceptual system, there is a place for that interpretation of Second Thessalonians that says the Antichrist or the man of lawlessness is yet to come. My own personal conviction, which is teachable and open to change, but at this point I'm, I'm more convinced that Paul is speaking there of the same person known as the beast in Revelation, and the beast, John specifically, dates for us as the sixth emperor of Rome, Nero. But I could be wrong on that. No, I'm not aware of it either. Well, if I argued from analogy in the way that uh, Dr. Murray dealt with Matthew 24, my guess is he would probably take the, the, he would have taken the course 
of saying that that dealt with the end times, not in the general sense, but at the very end, when there's an apostasy. And uh, as far as I know, he did not take a preterist approach to those matters. Okay, now here. No, no, no. No, that's fine. I agree with you. Real conversion, people do not fall away from real conversion. Right. There's... Yeah, I understand. Um, sure. And, uh, and I'd be less than frank if I didn't tell you that's the part in the system which, from a human perspective, I have the hardest time with. When I did come to understand the sovereignty of God and um, to realize what it took for him to convert the Apostle Paul or me, I got to thinking, if God has promised that he'll convert the world, he can convert the world. That's not a problem. But then what bothered me is why, if we have that promise, is there a falling away at the end? And I can only offer partial reasons for that that are given in the Scripture, and my speculation is worthless on it. The fact is it's taught. And so, you see, we have to deal with that. Now, when you talk about being a Calvinist, remember it's Charles Hodge, the Calvinist, who tells us that this widespread conversion of the world does not mean in every case that the turning is an inward turning. Now, there are going to be many who turn inwardly, but as you know, in any society, this is true of all religions of the world. When you see a turning to a religious, you know, a new religious perspective, there are people who will outwardly conform with that, even though they may either have doubts or be totally indifferent inwardly to it. And Hodge seems to think that that, he said, is the germ for the persecuting power that will eventually develop one day. When you speak, when you personify a nation and speak of a nation turning, that is a conversion experience, but that does not entail, you know, logically or exegetically, that every individual that is in this turned nation has himself or herself got a, a converted heart. And I think that's probably the answer to the dilemma that you're bringing up. Way back here. Well, I do think, um, I think post-millennialism is explicit in Revelation 20, but again, it, it may be helpful for those of you who are working through this. I didn't become a post-millennialist through the study of Revelation 20. I, I might still remember reading in the library the day that the coin dropped and I said I can't fight it anymore, but it was reading Warfield in Revelation 19, actually. And then I went back and I had been an amillennialist. In fact, I had publicly debated amillennialism against premillennialism. So, I mean, I knew something about that system and I just, I could not deal with the uh, Golden Age passages to my satisfaction. And so when all that fell in place, Revelation 20 became, I think, further reinforcement. But I do think that Revelation 20, properly interpreted, is post-millennial, uh, specifically the reference to um, reigning on Christ's throne. I mean, that, that is an image of victory in Scripture, and um, I think J. Marcellus Kick does a very good job of exp uh, expounding that. Right here. I, I would refer you to Roderick Campbell, uh, Lorraine Bettner as well, come to think of it. And I believe that that is a prophecy of the new covenant, the power of the Spirit in the new covenant is such that not only will God's people now keep his law, whereas they previously broke it, but in that day, uh, the gospel will be so powerful that the day will come will, to speak hyperbolically. You won't be able to find somebody to evangelize, for they all shall know me from the least to the greatest. I said speaking hyperbolically. In the same way that Jesus says, pluck out your eye, Jeremiah, and others. Now, you, you may not accept that. I mean, you know, here I'm giving these things, you know, slam, slam, slam. They all call for extensive study. I'm just trying to give you bottom line. To, to my um, way of thinking, what you have here is the poetic and, and hyperbolic use of prophetic language, that they all should know me, is a generalization rather than 
something very specific. Of course, us Calvinists are accustomed to doing that, right? When the Bible speaks of Christ dying for the world, we, we think that, you know, all without um, uh, exception, not, uh, no, not all without exception, all without distinction. And so what you have here is a generalization covering all kinds of men and as, as it were the vast majority of men. Well, yeah, and, and right here, we're not going to be able to do much in terms of hand-to-hand -hand combat exegetically. What I'm trying to do to call you to do is to restudy these things in light of a system of thought that I think has been ignored. I think there's something to be said for this. Uh, here. Right. Generally speaking, I think my amillennial friend and brother Jay Adams is right about the effect of the binding of Satan, where I think Jay has overstated his case is that the, the binding of Satan, I think, diminishes demonic activity only to the degree that the gospel is powerfully proclaimed in a culture. And so what you have, as he admits, is in missionary situations you have that, but you also have a situation, if you don't mind, like Jesus teaches, when you know the demons leave and what happens is nothing positive takes its place, there's now a return of demonic activity, which is even worse than what, than what it would have been previously. And in our own culture, I do believe there's demonic activity like that, although I don't have the empirical, you know, uh, wherewithal to tell you how much and so forth. But I think that it's because our culture is basically an apostate culture. You know, and which please remember, those of you who think that me as a theonomist, I'm this, you know, rah-rah American. America is in deep trouble with the Lord, I think. And I think we've had a great spiritual privilege we've turned from and it wouldn't surprise me that we see not only the moral effects of the degeneration of our cities and sexuality and so forth, but it wouldn't surprise me, given my theology, that we'd see a greater influx of demonic work, too. But I, I mean, that's not post-millennialism, that's just Greg Bonson. Who wants to ask about post-millennialism? Okay, unless there's someone in the back, right here. Yeah, the question is, why do you, if you're a post-millennialist, see cultures that apostatize? You see spiritual gains, and then you see things falling back. And a real quick answer, and then I need to dismiss you all, is that um, we see the same sort of thing in our individual lives, too. We see some Christians that are really on fire for the Lord, and then without apostatizing in the sense that they utterly blaspheme the name of Christ and repudiate it, they become indifferent, they become cold. You have times in your own life probably have that, too. Um, I wouldn't say that systemically or conceptually that the idea that you have nations that are converted then fall away and so forth is inherently contrary to um, believing in the sovereignty of God or this post-millennial vision. But the point is that the day will come when the nations will kind of get it together and, uh, and learn to live with each other in peace and so forth, relatively speaking. They're going to turn away from warfare to agricultural pursuits. And I'm looking forward to that. LR2 as well. If you would like more information about the study center or my book, No Other Standard, which recently came out and is an answer to many of the questions or criticisms that you might have about Reconstructionism or Theonomy, I'd be glad I have a postage paid postcard here for anybody who would like that. And um, thank you very much for coming.